the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. If Jesus is in the image of God and you and I have been created in that image and it's been restored to us at salvation, then I want to be like Jesus. But how do I know what Jesus is like? I get into the Word of God and I study this. I study this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Basically, what he means is this. As you gaze upon Jesus Christ... As you read about him and obey him, you're going to be changed to be like him. Which practically means this, that God is using all the circumstances of life to make us like Christ. As I study the word, as I evaluate how Christ would respond, and I see my circumstances, and I put his response into action, I'm becoming more and more like Christ. But I need to know what Christ is like. them to be like himself in the sense that they had the ability to think and decide. They had moral discernment. They also were given a conscience, intellect, emotion, and will. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the image of God in them was marred, but it wasn't totally destroyed. Welcome. It's time once again for Verse by Verse, where we are studying the incomparable Christ. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, as we continue to discuss the image of God in humanity, Pastor Steve is going to remind us that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God restores His image in us. We have much to learn today, so let's jump right into today's lesson. When God created man, He made him to be like Himself in the sense that man had the ability to think and decide. He has moral discernment. He has a conscience. He has intellect. He has emotion. He has will. There are certain qualities to man. They had certain attributes, character qualities that God has given him, like God, their truth and love and justice and holiness. But when man fell in the garden, when man fell, that image was marred. It wasn't totally destroyed. Man is not like the animals. Sometimes he behaves like that. But man is different. It's marred. It's still there. He still has a conscience, but doesn't work properly. It's still there, but it doesn't function the right way. His intellect is there, but now it's distorted. He doesn't think clearly. Tries to be logical, but he's illogical as far as God is concerned. 
His emotions are there, but they're not right. They're out of tune. His will is there, but it's out of whack. It doesn't operate right. The image of God is marred in man. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. Jesus was not made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. That's the difference. That is to say he has always been and will always be deity. He is by virtue of who he is, the image of God, because he is God. We were only made in the image of God, and that image is marred anyway. So you understand that Jesus is not like God. He is God. Jesus is not some second-rate angel. Well, how does that affect us? Knowing that he's fully God, how does that affect us? Well, notice Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. We looked at this before, but I'm going to emphasize something else. Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And he's speaking at salvation now. You laid it aside and have put on the new self who is being watched, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction and so forth. Then look at Ephesians chapter 4 because it really is a commentary on this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What he is saying is this, that at the moment of salvation, whether you realize it or not, God's image was restored to us. God's image was restored to us, but we still need to work at allowing him to manifest those character qualities by our obedience to his word. But potentially, it's there. The image of God has been restored to us so that we have the capacity to obey him. We have the capacity to do what we were created to do, to honor him, to please him, to obey him. We need to work at that in terms of our own desires and wills and so forth, but Jesus Christ is supremely God. If you want to have victory over your sin and you want that image to function properly, then you must make it your business to gaze upon him. That's the key. If you want to be like him, you must gaze upon him. In other words, you must become a student of the life of Jesus Christ. Not simply knowing about him theoretically, but to study the Gospels, to gaze upon him, to focus on his character. That's why this is so important. It isn't that you go out of here saying, doctrinally, I understand that he's God. It's in our doctrinal statements. I understand that. That's the test of orthodoxy. That's not the point. The point is, if he's God, not only do I submit to him, but if Jesus is in the image of God and you and I have been created in that image and it's been restored to us at salvation, then I want to be like Jesus. But how do I know what Jesus is like? I get into the word of God and I study this. I study this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Basically, what he means is this. As you gaze upon Jesus Christ, as you read about him and obey him, you're going to be changed to be like him. 
which practically means this, that God is using all the circumstances of life to make us like Christ. As I study the word, as I evaluate how Christ would respond, and I see my circumstances, and I put his response into action, I'm becoming more and more like Christ. But I need to know what Christ is like. He is God. What he does is absolutely right. Now let me back up a little bit and say, just concerning the deity of Christ, I remember when I was a new believer, I was with some friends, not Christian friends, but I remember someone saying to me, they said, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Isn't it amazing when you get around your unsafe friends how they turn into theologians? And they all know all about the Bible. You never heard anything before, but you just start speaking about your relationship with Christ, and they are prominent theologians. And this young man said to me, you know, Jesus never claimed to be Messiah. He never claimed to be God. It was just later that people invented this, kind of what Life magazine has said. My response, in case you're wondering, was, oh, but I did more than say, oh, John chapter 10, I did not let that go unchallenged. But look what John chapter 10 says in John 10, verse 30, after Jesus said that I give my sheep eternal life, they'll never perish and I'm the good shepherd. And then he said in verse 30, I and the father are one. I and the father are one. I'm deity, just as the father is. And they got the message very clearly because it says in verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. His enemies knew exactly what he was claiming. So where do we come up with this stuff? Why do people resist so much the deity of Jesus Christ? Why would that young man say to me, Jesus never claimed to be God, when it's so clearly in the Bible? I mean, how do you miss that? Let me show you. I'll tell you why people have a hard time believing that Jesus is God. There's a theological answer for that. Second Corinthians again. Second Corinthians, and you would do well to mark this down because this will help you to understand your unsaved relatives, your unsaved people you work with, why they have such a hard time believing in the deity of Christ. I think part of it is that they don't want to submit to his lordship, but I don't think that's all of it. Second Corinthians chapter 4 Verses 3 and 4, the apostle writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The reason that the non-Christian has a hard time seeing that Jesus Christ is the image of God is because Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their minds. Now, they also choose to allow him to blind them, and I don't fully understand how that works. It's not like they're saying, we don't want to be blinded, but he's blinding us, and we they don't even believe in a personal devil, but they are very happy to be blinded, and that's the reason why people have such a hard time believing in Christ's deity. But we do believe in it, and we know it more than theory. Jesus Christ is God in relation to God, he is deity. He is God. Does that affect your life? Do you want to be like him? Do you look and say, he is the image of the invisible God, and I, at the depth of my being, want to be like God? How do you know what God is like? You study the person and the character and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, The supremacy of Christ is not only seen in his relation to God, but it's seen also in his relation to creation. 
creation. Notice the next phrase of verse 15. After saying he's the image of the invisible God, Paul says, the firstborn of all creation. If he is God and not a high-ranking angel, then Christ must be above every creature. So Paul calls him the firstborn of all creation. Now this phrase has confused some people, given problems to many believers. In fact, I remember years ago, a Jehovah's Witness using this verse to try to prove to me that Jesus Christ was merely a created being. And I remember very clearly him using this, and I would witness to him, and he'd tell me, and so forth. And he felt very confident that that verse proved that Jesus Christ was a created being. And you know what? At first glance, it might appear that Paul is saying that Jesus was the first person created. In fact, that's kind of what the Colossians were being taught, only I don't know if they thought he was the first, but he was a created being. But I want you to know that is definitely, definitely not what Paul is teaching. Absolutely not. Now, even if you didn't know what the phrase firstborn of all creation meant, you should not be confused by this. You should not be alarmed thinking, oh, he's not God, he's created, because you know from other scriptures that very clearly the deity of Christ is presented. In fact, we just looked at one. He is the image of the invisible God. But John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. I mean, there are many others. He did only those things that deity would do, receive worship and other things like that. There are many avenues to prove that Jesus is God. So even if you didn't know that, if you didn't know what this phrase meant, all you have to do is go to other scriptures and have reassurance he is not a created being. But what does firstborn mean? It is not referring to chronology. This expression is not saying he was the first one born in a home. Not saying that. He's the oldest. That's not what this is about. That's what we normally, when you hear firstborn, you think, oh, he's the first one born in the family. That's not what this means. This is not talking about ranking in terms of first in chronology, but first in terms of ranking. He is the first in honor. He is the first in importance. By the way, it was a very Jewish concept, and the Gentiles understood this as well. He is the first in terms of the rights of inheritance. That's the thought here. It referred to being elevated above others in the family. That's what they did in Jewish circles, regardless of whether you're the first one who was born into the family, the second one, the third. The father had the choice of who would be elevated to being above the others and having the inheritance. For example, remember that Isaac had two sons. He had Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first. They were twins, but Esau was born first. So technically, he was the first one born in the family. But as you read Genesis, you understand that Jacob received the blessing of the firstborn, even though he was technically not the first one to come out of his mother's womb. That's the concept of firstborn. He received the blessings, he received the inheritance. It was his. In Exodus 4, verse 22, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Does that mean he's never known anybody else? That there was nobody else in the family? They were the first ones who came to know him? No. It just means that he's elevated them above all the other families of the earth in terms of their significance with him. I think a key verse is Psalm 89, verse 27, because specifically this term is used there. Psalm 89, verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
This is a messianic psalm. He's saying, I will make the Messiah my firstborn above the other kings of the earth. See, that's the concept. Not where he was born in terms of time, but he's elevated above all the other kings. And even if someone were to say, well, that's not referring to Messiah, that's referring to King Solomon, still that proves the point because Solomon was elevated above the others. He was not the oldest. But this is a messianic psalm, exalted over the other kings. So what Paul is teaching is that Jesus Christ is elevated above all of creation. And do you know why? We go back to Colossians chapter 1, now verse 16. Do you know why he's elevated above? Because he is the creator. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the creator. Jesus is supreme over creation because he is the one who created everything. Now, I just want you to see the satanic attack on the deity of Christ. Satanic attack. This is something very interesting, and some of these things just fit in to share with you, but I told you about how the God of this world blinds people and how this Jehovah's Witness years ago tried to use Colossians to show Jesus is created. Jehovah's Witness have their standard translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. It's a very poor translation. It's a prejudiced translation. They add things to prove their theological bias. But what you may not know is that in these verses, they have added the word other, O-T-H-E-R, other, six times in this passage so that it looks like Christ created all other things after he was created. That is the intent of why they put that there. That should not be there. They want to make it look like Christ created all other things after he was created, but he was created, they would say. Now, that's blasphemy. That is blasphemy of the highest kind. Jesus Christ was not created. He is the creator. When you read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you're reading about Jesus. Jesus is the creator, the one who loves you, the one who died for your sins, the one who was on earth. Jesus Christ is the creator. John 1.3, I mean, this is throughout the scriptures. It's not isolated here. Paul didn't invent this. Paul is inspired of God. But John 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Pretty clear to me. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, same thought. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days he's spoken unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus Christ is the creator. Now notice once again, I'm going to show you something very interesting. Verse 16, let's read this again. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, watch this, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, notice in this how specifically Paul describes Jesus as created. He speaks of him creating what is not only visible, but also invisible. And then he clarifies that. He explains it. The invisible things are thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. What's he talking about? He's not talking about kings of the earth. He's talking about those things are invisible. He's talking about angels. Angels. These are the various rankings or classification of angels. You see, the false teachers had all of these rankings 
of angels. They said that Jesus fit into one of these angelic rankings. There were classifications, and there probably are classifications of angels. It would appear like that in Ephesians chapter 6. Whether it's exactly like this, how it works, I don't know. But there appears to be some kind of order in angels. You have the highest angels and then lower angels and so forth. But what Paul is saying is this. They're wrong. Jesus didn't fit into one of these classifications. Jesus isn't one of them. He's their creator. He made them. He created them. And that's just a fascinating thing. That's really what he's getting at. That's why you have to understand the background of angels here. Now, have you ever asked yourself this question? I think this is a deep question. I think this is perhaps the most important question that anyone could ever ask themselves. Why was I created? Why were you created? What is life about? I mean, you get a little philosophical here. Why are you on this earth? Why were you made? Why did Jesus create the universe? Why did he make it? He's certainly content in and of himself. He has no needs. You understand that. God has no needs. It wasn't that the Trinity one day said, you know, we're really lonely. I mean, some people believe that. We're really lonely. Let's just think this thing through and let's create man. God has absolutely no needs. He has desires, but he has no needs. Why did Jesus Christ create the universe? Why did he create us? The end of verse 16 tells us it's profound. All things have been created through him and for him. For him. Life does not rotate around you or me. It rotates around him. In other words, he created everything to serve his will, to bring him glory, to accomplish his pleasure. Paul says the same thing, basically, in essence, in Romans 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. It all rotates around him. Everything in this universe is moving towards one goal, and that is to acknowledge that Christ is supreme and to give him glory. Everything. Paul says in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why he created all things and that's where everything is moving. It's moving to come to a climax in history where all of creation bows down and worships him. They're not all going to be saved, but they're all going to bow down and acknowledge who he is. When you get some time, you ought to look at Revelation chapter 5 because in Revelation chapter 5, John takes us way distant into the future in which all of creation comes before him and acknowledges that he's worthy to receive all power and glory. You see, Jesus is supreme over creation. And if you see that, then you're going to worship him because that's what you were created for, to serve and worship him. I ask you this, a pertinent question. Are you bringing pleasure to your creator? Are you bringing him pleasure? Are you pleasing him? What is your life about? Is it how much you can accumulate? Do you think that life is how much you can get? He who dies with the most toys wins. Is that the way it is? Or the purpose of life is to get married and have a family? That's not the purpose. It's a nice thing that God has given, but it's not the ultimate. Is it to be happy? I want to be happy. That's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate goal in life is, have I brought my God and creator pleasure? Am I pleasing him? Not am I living comfortably. Not do I have the best job. Not how much money can I make. It's how much pleasure can I bring to him? You say, well, how do I bring pleasure to him? Well, we went over that recently. I'll review it 
chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. In other words, may the word of God fill you, your heart and mind, so that you will apply the word of God to the circumstances of life, and in applying the word of God and in obeying the Lord of the word, you bring pleasure to him. It's not that hard. It's not that profoundly deep that you can't comprehend it. The issue is, are you bringing him pleasure by obeying him? As we were coming to the end of today's lesson, Pastor Steve had a very interesting question. Are you bringing pleasure to your creator? It's an important question. We can have a tendency to live for what we can get, what makes us happy, even good things like a family. However, the ultimate goal in life is, have I brought my creator pleasure in the way I am living? In our next verse-by-verse, we're going to continue with that thought and another question, which is, how do I bring pleasure to God? As always, Pastor Steve will answer that question with the Word of God. If you have been blessed by the teaching of this verse-by-verse program, let me encourage you to tell this radio station as well as Lakeside Community Chapel. And if you're able, please join us for the next verse-by-verse where there are more blessings for us as we learn more about the incomparable Christ. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.